0: Today is March 26th, 2021. Jobless claims hit a pandemic low. Virginia becomes the first state in the South to abolish the death penalty, and Biden holds his first news conference. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for y'all here today, rolling it out to you here at the end of the week, ready for this weekend. And we've got all the best news and insights from both sides of the aisle, doing our best to look at the good and the bad on the left, the good and the bad on the right, and find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. Y'all, I can say with all certainty, this is the best podcast that we have done yet. You heard it here first. Buckle up because we've got some great stories and some great news for you here. With all of that having been said, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, the United States jobless claims hit the lowest point that they have been since the start of the pandemic. So as of last week, there were only 300 or 684,000 new jobless claims, uh, and the unemployment rate has now ticked down as of February to 6.2%. There were about 380,000 new jobs that were added during the month of February, so it looks like the economy is starting to open back up and start to get back to that new growth mindset like all of us Americans always want to have. So many Americans are going back to enjoy a whole bunch, a wide range of different services and different businesses like restaurants or spas. Much of this growth that's actually kind of happening is starting to come in the areas also of travel, leisure, and stuff that people haven't been able to do a whole lot within the past year. Uh, U.S. hotel occupancy actually hit almost 50% uh, the first the first week of March, which is way higher than anything that we have seen within the previous year. Airbnb and VRBO as well were, are also way above their pandemic lows, although they are not quite to what they were before the pandemic started. Uh, basically, people are starting to go out. They're getting vaccinated and they're booking vacations um, and they're starting to travel a bit more. So the number of people going through TSA checkpoints are, is also going back up significantly. However, they are still at about 50% lower than what they were before the pandemic hit. So it looks like there's still uh, a good bit of people that are still not necessarily traveling a lot, and I think a lot of this actually has to do with the lack of people that are traveling for business. So the majority of the travel that we see, especially within domestic flights in the United States, is normally for some sort of business or another. And a lot of businesses still aren't bringing people back into the office, and they're still not actually sending a lot of their people all around the country to to go to two new office sites. Uh, I think one of the big shifts that you're actually probably going to see, especially in uh, some of the more financial services spaces, uh, especially, but it is going to be actually around consulting and hiring consultants and br- consultants and bringing them in. Uh, a lot of companies I think are seeing and recognizing at this point that they're able to have consultants that work remotely from them and they don't have to fly these incredibly expensive people in for the entire week, every single week, and put them up in hotels and provide them a desk and a place to work in an office and sometimes provide uh, food and lunch budgets and stuff as well. A lot of these companies are like, well, that's just a cost that we don't have to eat anymore. We can just let the consultants stay at home and work from home and get all the stuff done that they need to get done. So, Uh, I don't think that you're going to see the business travel tick back up very quickly. I think it's going to take a long time for that to come back if it ever does. So as of now, economists have raised the predictions for the United States growth, the economic growth of 2021 to almost 6%, just under 6%, which is a pretty nice jump from the under 5% that was actually forecasted not just a month earlier. So this is likely higher growth than just about any person working in the United States right now has actually experienced. The U.S. normally is really, really solid. Like We have a good year if it hits around 4% growth for the entire year in GDP. However... You also have to take into account we're still kind of climbing out of the hole from the pandemic, so this is the type of growth that you would kind of expect and somewhat hope for, although it is much faster growth in the economy that we have seen coming out of a recessionary period in a very, very long time. So economists are really looking at some of the spending habits of Americans as they're really kind of starting to change right now. The pandemic shifted a lot of the spending habits for the entirety of Americans, especially on you know how often they go out to eat or the amount of debt that they're consolidating um, or the amount of debt that they're actually taking on. Uh, but there really are a ton of factors that play into this as well. So Uh, one of the things that a lot of economists are actually thinking about and is really playing into a lot of their projections right now is uh, how better weather actually helps consumer spending. So there's normally uh, historically an uptick as summer starts to hit because that's when a lot of people do a lot of their traveling and vacations and spend money as winter kind of starts to end. They want to go out and buy their boats or they want to buy their new cars. Normally housing sales tick up around the summer as well because the students are out of school. So If you want to move, you don't have to pick your kids up in the middle of a school year and move them somewhere else. You can just do it while they're on their summer vacation. Um, So at this point, it's kind of all looking like things are starting to go uphill. Um, Contrary to what a lot of people think, and I've tried to dispel this myth as much as I can on my podcast, uh, but the vast majority of the United States population actually reduced the amount of debt that they have and have actually saved a lot of money through this pandemic approximately 75 to 76% of the people that received stimulus checks over this past year actually used them to pay down debt or just moved it completely into savings. So household savings were at $1.4 trillion in February of 2020. Right now, it is sitting at almost $4 trillion. That's the amount of household savings. That means over the course of the pandemic, it has more than doubled. Household savings has more than doubled with high income earners uh, amassing the largest portion of those savings. So, uh, With that having been said, they also, you know, do most of the spending in the economy as well. So with all of that savings, uh, many economists are basically expecting for it to surge on a huge amount of growth for the rest of the year. Normally, you see when people have more money put uh, set aside in emergency funds or in some sort of household savings, they're much more inclined to be spending freely of the paychecks that they're bringing in. Right? Just kind of common sense. So if there's anything for certain. The pandemic was very, very good for people that already had money. And very, very bad for people that were more low income earners. Okay. The largest companies in the country and in the world have increased almost exponentially in size. Like they have absolutely ballooned in their market share, in their capitalization, and the amount of cash that they have. They have absolutely exploded. And the highest income earners were not only not affected by the changes that the pandemic brought, they actually, according to data, are doing much better. So, As a portion of the overall economy, uh, the people that were highly affected by this pandemic in terms of not being able to have a job or having to rely on government handouts is actually a fairly small portion of the economy. Okay, And I know that that's not a a popular thing that's being talked about a lot, especially amongst the left side of the aisle. The number one thing that is pushed is that the, the pandemic basically ruined the lives of the entirety of everyone in America financially. But that simply is just not the case, okay? Uh, Granted, yes, there are still a lot of people that lost jobs. There are still a lot of people that are struggling right now. I hear that and I understand that completely. But as a percentage and as a group of the overall United States population, it's actually a much smaller portion than many people are led to believe. So, uh, we are still about nine and a half million jobs less in the United States economy than we're here in February of 2020. So there's still a long way to go. There's a lot of room that we have to make up. However, like I said earlier, most of the job losses were in service sectors, uh, with, you know, currently most restaurants still operating at a 50% or less capacity. As these restrictions start to lift, many economists and many uh, people are forecasting that that is actually going to be made up, uh, made up for very, very quickly. Those nine and a half million jobs that were still set back, Um, and you know, with the amount of money that has been saved, especially by high-income earners, new businesses are expected to be created as well. And with new businesses come new jobs that are created. So uh, I, I expect. Personally, and I've been saying this for a little while, I expect the economy in 2021 to absolutely explode, like straight uphill with the amount of money that the United States government is spending and basically just, I mean, just printing money and pumping it into the economy through a wide variety of different means. Uh, Through vaccines getting out and getting into people's arms at the speed in which they are, which nobody really expected coming into the Biden administration, uh, with herd immunity not far off at all, I think you can expect for the United States economy to grow very, very, very quickly, which... As I actually talked about in uh, the one of my guest episodes, uh, my second guest episode with Ari Robbins, uh, I, I really think that that actually is going to be a detriment to the United States economy going into 2022, uh, because if you have your economy growing too quickly, it actually ends up pushing more towards inflation It actually reduces the value of the United States dollar. And when the value of the dollar is reduced, our spending power, especially overseas, which is where we purchase a lot of our products, actually gets damaged and it hurts the consumers even more. So I'm sure that Janet Yellen, head of the Treasury, I'm sure Jerome Powell, their head of the Fed, and Biden are going to be thinking about and working through a lot what it looks like to be able to make sure that the economy uh, doesn't expand too quickly uh, so that you know, interest rates get out of control and the value of the dollar gets absolutely destroyed. Um, But I think you can expect for the United States economy to grow very, very quickly uh, here over the next year or so. And a lot of economists are predicting that as well. So, with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So for our second story of the day, Virginia becomes the first southern state to abolish the death penalty. Uh, They're definitely you know, not the first. They're actually the 23rd state to abolish the, the, uh, the death penalty. Uh, It was primarily supported by the Democratic majority in their state legislature. They have a majority in, I believe, the House and in the Senate, the state House and state Senate. Uh, And they also have Governor Northam, uh, who is a Democrat as well. And he was quoted as saying, there is no place today for the death penalty in this commonwealth, in the South or in this nation. Uh, So there were actually two Republicans that did vote for the bill. But it was clearly a, an extremely partisan bill, which we will kind of get into in a bit as well. So let's go ahead and hop on in real quick. This is the Associated Press uh, with a quick video on Governor Northam as he was coming out to sign this bill. Today, Virginia becomes the first southern state to end this practice. We join 22 other states in saying the government will not take a life the government will no longer execute people and that's northern sitting down signing all the papers so Uh, Virginia has, uh, actually executed the second most amount of people since the founding of the colonies. And up until the past couple of years, it really did look like that was something that would never change, especially as it's a piece and it's a state in the South and the South, which is primarily held, uh, their legislatures and governorships or at the gubernatorial level are normally held by Republicans. Uh, it looked like that was something that was not really going to change. But the slide the the tide has been changing slowly but surely to kind of shift away from the use of and the advocacy of the death penalty uh, for a multitude of reasons. So let's go ahead and hop in. Let's take a quick look at what the left has to say, what the right has to say, and then I'll also give my opinion as well. So the left. The left wholeheartedly supports this decision and wants to see the death penalty abolished in all 50 states. So this has been... Uh, an argument on the left for quite some time now, uh, especially since the 1970s. So there was a big Supreme Court decision, uh, I believe in 1976, uh, that made it legal for, you know, basically a state's rights issue, whether or not they wanted to keep the death penalty or not. And since then, uh, the left side of the aisle has kind of had a slow but steady push towards trying to get states to abolish uh, the death penalty in its entirety, to, entirely, not even for, uh, you know, incredibly heinous crimes, but just completely, basically, if, if someone does a crime that would be deserving of what previously would be deserving of the death penalty, that they now just have life imprisonment without the opportunity for parole. And the left has two primary arguments here. So the first is that there's always a gray area. And this is, this used to be the largest argument on the left. And it pretty much goes like this. So many on the left argue that it is almost impossible to know with 100% certainty as to whether or not someone actually committed a crime and that they would be worthy of the death penalty. Okay. Okay. Even with the introduction of DNA evidence, there are still multiple people every year that are taken off of death row because it is later found out that they did not commit the crime. So since 1973, 170 people have been released from the death penalty after their innocence was proven, okay? Which you're like, 170 people over the course of 50 years? That doesn't sound like that much. Well, there's only been 1,500 people executed, okay? So... That's not a that's that's not a good fail rate, right? Like that's that's not a very good bar that is set, right? You're talking about taking someone's life and out of the 1500 people that have been executed, 170 people have been taken off of death row and completely acquitted, okay? Like as in we found no evidence that you actually committed the crime at all. So that doesn't even include or take into account the fact that people that actually were executed that were then after they were post mortem found out to be proven innocent. Okay, that's a lot of people. And that is not a very good statistic. So much of the left points to, even with DNA evidence, even oftentimes with camera footage, as much as our technology has increased, there is almost always some sort of gray area and there's almost always some level of doubt as to whether or not someone actually committed a crime. There have been plenty of cases where people have come in and actually you know, pleaded guilty to having committed crimes and then been sentenced to death row. And then later found out that they did not commit the crime, but they were uh, forced into or pushed towards uh, pleading guilty for a specific crime. So almost always there's, there's very, there's never a hundred percent degree certainty. Okay. The second argument is that uh, this is something that disproportionately affects blacks and brown, uh, black and brown minorities. Okay. So especially if the victim of the crime is white. Even though black and Latino defendants make up a significantly smaller portion of the overall population, right? If you look at the overall population of, of black and Latino people specifically in the United States, they are a significantly smaller portion of the population than, of course, their counterparts that are white. However, they account for, on average, about the same amount of death sentences as white people do. Uh, And the left has pointed to this as a clear example of how racism is playing into the criminal justice system. In fact, there are many people on the Virginia legislature that came out and said that the death penalty is akin to the lynchings that were happening in the South uh, prior to and during the Jim Crow laws, basically saying that the death penalty is a means by which to be able to put black and brown people down and be able to execute judgment on them literally uh, as a means by which which to oppress them. Okay. And that is uh, a little bit more of an argument that's kind of taken more shape over the past decade or so, especially as this more identity type culture has started to move and permeate its way uh, through, especially the left side of the aisle, although it has definitely permeated onto the right as well. Much of this is kind of founded on critical race theory and the the understanding of how different races are, are affected, uh, especially in a systemic way within various governmental structures. So the left has kind of taken, taken critical race theory on in a lot of ways and has different identity groups and different race groups or groups of people that are oppressed. And as a result of that argument and that Ideology on the left side of the aisle, this argument has kind of come out of it, basically saying the criminal justice system is pointedly against blacks and minorities. And this, you know, the death penalty is a great example of it. So, what does the right say? So, the right wants to continue with the death penalty for the most part. Most of this comes down to the argument that the death penalty should be kept for only the most heinous of crimes, okay? Uh some of this is based upon keeping those uh off of the streets with no possibility of harming anyone else. So the idea here is if somebody comes in and we are able to prove uh beyond a reasonable doubt, uh which I believe is the necessary requirement under the law in order to be able to prove that somebody should be uh worthy of the death penalty, um, They have to, uh, you would like somebody comes out and they, you know, rape and murder 10 children, right? Something absolutely horrendous. Well, the right side of the aisle looks at that and they're basically like, there's no reason why this person one deserves to live after they have done absolutely horrible things. But two, we don't want that person to have the opportunity to get back out on the streets and do something like this again. At any point in this person's life, we don't want for them to have the opportunity for parole. We don't want for them to have the opportunity to break out of prison because sometimes that happens as well. Um, And, you know, because we want to be able to protect the overall United States population. Other arguments claim that it can be seen as a deterrent for people that otherwise would commit those crimes. So the argument here, and granted, I get this is a pretty loose argument, but if someone was thinking about murdering somebody, but then they realized that they would be put to death if they murdered somebody, they would be much more um, reticent to commit that crime than if there was no death penalty there at all. So another portion, I guess the last kind of argument on the right actually looks at how much it costs to actually house and feed and keep an inmate alive for the entirety of their lifetime. If they are sentenced to a lifetime, imprisonment. Um and it says basically the argument on the right is that it is honestly much cheaper to give them the death penalty than it is to keep them alive and house them in their j- in jails for the rest of their lifetime, especially when they're somebody that would have no opportunity to ever be at back out to communicate with anyone from the outside world because they are a serial killer or they're some type of horrible person somebody that's done something absolutely horrible. So that's the arguments on the left and the right. So personally I think the death penalty should go. You may have been able to tell that from the, you know, how I've talked about it so far, but totally setting aside the moral argument of not wanting to decide whether or not it should be up to us, whether or not someone should execute the crime, right? Because that we don't have to get into the whole morality part of it. I think that within our criminal justice system, uh, it is not accurate enough to conclusively decide whether or not someone actually committed a crime that would be worthy to be worthy of being executed for, and this is not an indictment on our criminal justice system at all, because I really do believe wholeheartedly that the United States has one of the best judicial systems and structures in the world. That's not to say that it's perfect, okay, because it's not perfect. There are plenty of ways that our justice system will continue and hopefully will push forward and grow, but no justice system in the entire world will ever get every case right because that's impossible. There's no way that you are always going to convict the guilty person. There's no way that you're always going to let free the innocent person. There's no way. When I look at the statistic of the fact that 170 people were found to be completely innocent out of 1,532 people that were put to death over the last 50 years, what that says to me is that there is an 11% chance that people on death row are actually innocent. Okay, They're actually found to have their verdicts completely wrong. And those were just the evidence where new uh, new cases were, or those were just the cases where new evidence was permitted to be shown or the appeal process was actually carried through and those people were acquitted. Okay. So if someone were to sit down 10 glasses in front of you and say, nine of them are filled with Coke. One of them is filled with poison. What are you going to do? You're probably not going to drink any of the glasses because those are not great odds when you are gambling on your life. Okay. (laughs) It's just not. And I get that example isn't perfect. Okay. That example is not foolproof. But I don't think that the death penalty uh, it, right now as it sits is uh, accurate enough in the verdicts to be able to justify us continuing to execute prisoners because there are so many people that are, that are you know, afterwards found to be innocent. It basically follows along the old legal adage, and this is a saying within uh, a lot of lawyers and legal circles. And it kind of is a a description of the United States, the structure of the United States judicial system. Okay. And it says, quote, you would rather 10 guilty people go free than see one innocent person found guilty. In a lot of ways, the reason why that sums up the American judicial system, or is at least supposed to, is that we have processes in place to slow down the trials and allow evidence to be presented so that it reduces the number of false convictions as much as possible. So that every single person has the right under the Sixth Amendment has the right to be able to have uh, you know due process. They have the right to be able to uh, be represented by someone and have their their case tried. Okay, and at, at the end of the day, that's great and that's all well and good. But it just will never be perfect. Okay, it just won't. And to me, I would rather us not be perfect and put someone in jail for the rest of their life than us not be perfect and to kill them. And I get, you can come in and you can say the, talk about the argument of, you know, well, what's more humane, just putting someone in a cell for the rest of their life or, um, you know, putting them immediately, just killing them. Personally, I think it's a bit more humane to allow those prisoners to be able to just live their lives in prison. Um, Granted, people may disagree with that, but that's just what I think. So with all that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and last story, story number three. So for our third story of the day, Biden holds his first news conference. Good old Biden finally got up there on the podium to take some absolutely rigorous questioning from the, you know, people reporting our news. So Biden, he find, he holds his first news conference. This was a huge break from tradition of presidents uh, basically holding formal news conferences, especially within their first month or two of being in the administration. Uh, many, especially on the right, were very upset on upset by this, but even critics on the left, I, I think, were, pointed out the that he campaigned on a lot of being the, quote, most transparent administration in history, and not holding news conferences doesn't help out very much with being transparent. So Biden's goal, I think, was to keep the conference focused on COVID relief and vaccines as much as he possibly could, because I think that, so far in his first, he's, he's been in there, what, 70 days or so. Uh, within his first two months or so, those are his biggest accomplishments that he would tout. Uh, he started out by giving a whole bunch of stats around how well the United States was doing against the virus. Leading up to the conference, his administration released a whole bunch of new reports and a whole bunch of new things, uh, basically talking about how well the vaccine rollout is doing and how new cases were going down and stuff like that. Uh, He talked about how he already hit his 100 million vaccines in his first 100 days and said that he was now revising that goal to have 200 million vaccines rolled out in his first 100 days. Biden said, quote, I know it's ambitious twice our original goal, but no other country in the world has come even close. So he basically got there, got up there and was like, in the very beginning, listen. I've done a lot of good stuff for the pandemic. I've done a lot of good stuff for the coronavirus. I'm rolling out these vaccines. You know, this has been a great start in my administration. Exactly what I want, which in a lot of ways should be expected because he wants to get credit for you know quote defeating COVID right uh, and helping our country push through it because which in you know in reality he was the president that got things done. Right. And you can say that Trump set him up for that. You can say that Trump was, you know, helping or trying to get the vaccines made and all that stuff. It's like, yeah, some of that is true. But Biden's a president that's going to get credit for it. Sorry. So he also stated and this is this was interesting. But he also stated that he was planning on running again in 2024. Ooh, he said. So someone asked him the question. This was by uh, Nancy Cordes over there at uh, CBS news she's a white house correspondent for them she said quote have you decided whether you are going to, whether or not you're going to run for re-election in 2024 you haven't set up a re-election campaign yet as your predecessor had by this time and biden laughed his good old hearty chuckle and he said that trump needed to start his re-election campaign that early <laughs> but that he wouldn't but now you're throwing bombs. So Biden said, quote, my plan is to run for reelection. That's my expectation. So Biden, who is currently 72, 78 years old, uh, and is the current oldest president in the history of the United States has the expectation of running again for the president of the United States, uh, and being about 82 years old he's expecting to run again. He also said that he would likely choose Kamala Harris as his VP again, because she is doing a great job in his words. Um, but I I don't know. At the end of the day, I feel like that's kind of a formality. If Biden had said that he wasn't planning on running again, the entirety of the left side of the aisle would have just like lost its marbles and started jumping up and down and talking about, like, who's our nominee going to be? What are we going to start doing? We've got to start planning for all this. Um, Everybody would freak out. And that would be the whole story of the news conference, right? Nobody would even care about anything else. So after that, things turned sour very quickly. So he immediately started getting pelted with questions about the ongoing crisis at the border, which we've talked about on the podcast a couple times over the past couple of weeks, because I think calling it a crisis is definitely an apt word. Many, many, many facilities at the border, are significantly overwhelmed, especially by a growing number of unaccompanied children. Many of those children are sitting in detention facilities for days on end, which is very not good and also against federal law. Uh, Biden deflected the blame onto the previous administration, like most presidents would, uh, saying that Trump ignored issues in Central and South America uh, and some of the problems that were there. And as a result, now we have the problems that were you know, caused by Trump. He also said that the surge of migrants was not caused by his policies, which were the significant lacking of immigration restrictions and rules for people coming into America through our southern border, but instead is largely caused by seasonal upticks in immigration. He pointed to the historical uptick around springtime uh, that is resulting to many more migrants choosing to come up and try and cross the border. Basically, Biden was like, listen, you know, we've got, uh, you know, this beautiful weather, especially down in Texas and in, and in Mexico and all these Central and South American immigrants are like, oh, man, I don't want to be going up there in the dead of summer when it's super hot. And I definitely don't want to be going there in the winter. So now is springtime, you know, the birds are chirping. It's time for me to get on up to that southern border and try to illegally cross the Rio Grande. Um, he then said that this was a humanitarian crisis more than anything and that his administration is working on ways to take care of the children that are being affected right now. He didn't outline any specific policies or things that he was working to change. He pretty much said things are going to change. So I also feel like it is at least pointing out. He did not call on one conservative news reporter through the entirety of the conference. Okay. Normally I feel like stuff like that doesn't matter that much, but with this being the first news conference that he has and with him saying that he wants to be the most transparent administration in history, um, that was kind of surprising me. So every single question was from a left-wing news outlet reporter outside of maybe you could maybe make the argument. One was from Ken Thomas over at wall street journal. Uh, but the wall street journal is not a conservative news outlet by any stretch of the imagination. Like their opinion section is somewhat conservative. They're just not extremely partisan left. Like they're actually fairly towards the middle. Um, he, he didn't get one question about COVID or the coronavirus. He talked about it himself a little bit and kind of touted his response to it, but he didn't get questioned on the amount of deaths that have happened since he took his administration took hold. Like, didn't talk a whole lot about that. Didn't get questions about any investigations into the origins of COVID. It's been a very hot topic over the past couple of months, especially as uh, China has claimed that they, you know, it was not, you know, it's not didn't come out of a lab. But there is growth. And growing evidence uh, saying that it likely did come out of a lab. Uh, he didn't get a question about uh, the story that came out just yesterday about Hunter Biden supposedly lying on background checks in order to illegally obtain a firearm. No questions on that. No questions about why he fell three times trying to walk up the stairs into Air Force One. None of that. And honestly, it honestly was just kind of disappointing. I, if, I mean, if I'm being perfectly clear, like, not everyone agrees with Biden's agenda and the decisions that he's making. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's going to be people that disagree with the policies of every single president and every single administration, but we should be able to expect our president to defend the policies that he or she is pushing through in front of people that disagree with the decisions that they make. Right? In fact, there were very, very conservative, few conservative news outlets that were even allowed in the room. There were only 30 that were allowed in because of coronavirus restrictions Uh, And the entirety of the news conference was really just Biden getting tossed really softball questions that he obviously knew most of ahead of time because he was literally referring to a note sheet in front of him and then deciding who that he who he wanted to call on. So I'm just not sure that you can claim to be transparent. okay? when you wait this long to hold a formal news conference and then don't take any questions that would be difficult for you to answer. I mean, like, I didn't have high expectations for this at all. Like, my expectations were very low. I did not expect Biden to come in and absolutely just blow everyone away. But I will admit, I was a little bit disappointed in the lack of transparency there because I kind of was. I was expecting a bit more from Biden. I'll be honest. Um, Didn't think that this was a win for Biden at all. So. With all of that having been said, that is the end of our third story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our last segment, my favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this past weekend was actually a new scotch that I got to try. Uh, it was a, a really, really good scotch. We got it for my buddy for his 30th birthday. Uh, we kind of all chipped in on it. It was a pretty expensive bottle. I mean, it was about a hundred bucks. So it's not like it was a cheap one, a good cheap budget scotch that you can go out and get, but, uh, it was extremely good. So it was a Dalmore scotch. I believe that it was a 12 year, super, super good. So if you have any opportunity to go pick up a Dalmore definitely go and do it because I think that you guys will not be disappointed if you enjoy good scotch. So with all of that, that is the end of our show today. Thank you so much for stopping by, for listening in and for checking us out. As always, please find me on Instagram at split the difference podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at split the difference. And I'm also on my website at split the with one T go and all those places, drop me some likes and subscribes, follow me and give me some five-star reviews because all of those things go such a long way for helping me to curate content that y'all like. And of course, get me in the ears of more people that otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to listen in. So remember, as always, y'all, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.